As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We are Jack to bring you this episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, we sit down with one of Bill's longest friends in the NFL, Mike Pereira. This is truly a unique opportunity to dive into the mind of one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the NFL. This is someone who has thought through every aspect of the game, the officiating continuum, the rules. This is one of the most unique and interesting conversations I have ever been able to be a part of related to football. And it's an unbelievably cool experience to kind of be on the fly on the wall, to listen to Mike and Bill talk about things. It's like being in a competition committee back in the day. But before we dive into today's show, I want to take a minute and talk about one of our favorite sponsors on the pod, Bet Online. We're back and better than ever. All eyes are on the gridiron and teams are back to start another football season. As always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action this season. With a new updated site and interface, even more odds, props, some of the props not a huge fan of in this regard. One of the big props is who's going to be the new coach at USC, and my wish, being a big Penn State fan, is that James Franklin wasn't so high on the list. So I do kind of love the bet. I'm just going to take anybody other than Franklin to leave Penn State. It goes without saying, Bet Online has you covered with an updated site, new interface, more contests. Bet Online continues to be the number one source for everything football. So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 100% welcome bonus. That's double your initial deposit just for signing up. Don't forget to use promo code NFL100. Bet online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. All right, this is one of the coolest episodes we've ever had on the pod. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Poling, and this is our sit-down with Mike Pereira. All right, gang, we are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and it's exciting. Rick, I hear a rumor we might have a guest in the house today. We absolutely do. Uh, he is someone who Bill and I worked with in the AAF. Uh, he, if, if we had walk-up music, which we do not have on this podcast, what we would be hearing right now is ZZ Top, sharp-breast man, because he, this was the most stylish guy in football. And not a bad referee, not a bad commentator, Mike Pereira. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think I'm stylish, and and um, I won't stand up now. So you know, so <laughs> we actually don't have video, so that's why I am not the stylish guy that uh, that I tried to be. But everybody said, "Oh my God, 
you you buy such good. I don't. Those aren't my clothes, for God's sake. They just like hang, have them hanging in a room. And one day they put a three-piece suit on me, and now I can't get the three-piece suits off. I mean, <laughs> you don't get to keep them. Well, you know, you know, um, yeah, you do because they fit them. You know, to, right to your body. And so the first time um, they said we're going to new suits. This was several years ago, and they said, "Would you like some?" I said, "Sure, don't throw them away." So they sent me nine suits to my house, and my wife said. <laughs> the hell are we going to do with these? I said, I'll hang them in the updoor, uh, the upstairs closet, which is in my office. And uh, so I hung these three piece heavy suits, you know, in the closet. And then I left to go get my car wash. And my wife called me and said, when was the last time you were in your office? And I said, well, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, I just came to get the car washed. And so she said, well, you might want to come back because the weight of seven three-piece suits <laughs> collapsed, the closet, collapsed the whole closet and it runs the entire length of my office. So the, the whole thing was in shambles. So um, there's a lot of people that went to the Goodwill store that are built like me that are wearing really nice suits. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's showbiz. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> What is happening? We have been talking about it on the pod for weeks. We are huge fans of Balance 7. So I don't know if you've heard, but apparently former NBA player Lamar Odom may be returning to his professional basketball roots playing in Spain soon. Apparently, he's going to try out for Paul Gasol's team. He's been taking a new product he owes the credit to, Balance 7. Balance 7, as you've heard us talk about week after week, is a pH-balancing alkaline supplement drink. It's like vitamins or supplements in liquid form. Just one ounce a day, three times a day, and in a week, you'll see the effects. Here's the deal. We're all getting a little older. We all might have put on that COVID 10 or 15, and there's nothing we're lacking more as we head into the doldrums of fall than energy. And Balance 7 could be the product that makes all the difference for you. It's definitely done it for me. So if you want to see how Balance 7's helped, Head over to balance7.com and use the promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, and you'll get 10% off their 32-ounce bottle. The bottle lasts 11 days, which is the perfect amount of time to feel the pH balancing drink go to work. Again, that's balance7.com and use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout. I did. If it worked for me, it can work for you, too. Thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, I, I thought it would be great for our listeners um, to get it right from the horse's mouth. Obviously, they know you from um, Fox Television, but uh, you and I go back uh, a lot longer than that when you were director of officiating for the NFL and I was on the competition committee. And um, I, I, I'll say by way of introduction that there, there's no better uh, person to explain the rules and expound on the rules, including the philosophy of the rules, than Mike Pereira. Um, I've learned so much um, working with him and, and, and together on the committee. And, uh, and so I'll turn it over to Rick, who's just going to open with a little biographical information. So people, uh, get to know who you are, despite just, just in, instead of just that fancy dress guy on Sunday. <laughs> right. And then, yeah. uh, and then we'll, we'll dive right into the rules. So, so Mike, I was going to do this more by way of question. I would imagine that when you were 10 years old, and somebody asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? The answer is not going to be a referee. Well, that, that's clearly true. 
so tell me first your background, how you got into it, what the motivation was, and what characteristics does a person have to have to be a great official in the NFL? Well, that's a that's a, a long question to answer. I guess first of all, how did I get involved? It was interesting. I was going to school at Santa Clara University. Um, I was in my junior year. And a guy came to me and asked me if I wanted to officiate football. And I said, no, I was not interested. And he's like, well, why? I said, because I'm not. And he said, I don't have any desire to officiate football. Hadn't played it. Um, and I just didn't. And he goes, well, your dad has officiated. And I said, maybe that's why I don't want to do it. Because <laughs> I went to games and saw him get yelled at. And so I just don't don't have any desire to do it. And the guy says, well, it's Pop Warner games on Sunday, three games, $10 a game, $30 cash, 1970. No money for beer money. All my other buddies could buy beer. All of a sudden, I took an interest in officiating. Right. <laughs> so I went to this Pop Warner game, and I don't know. I can't explain it. I just can't explain it. But here are these kids running around, and here I am, trying to adjudicate fairness as best as I knew it, because I wasn't clearly a master of the rules at that point. And I had the worst group of uh, people in terms of parents that were just yelling at me. And I just, I can't explain it. Something clicked, something clicked. And it made me feel unique. I loved it. It was like somebody injected me with adrenaline. I mean, it just got into my blood almost immediately. And so I stuck with it. And I did uh, high school freshman football. I did varsity football, moved on to junior college football, up the ladder to small college, and then to the um, PCAA, which is now known as the Big West, and then to the WAC, and then to the NFL. So I made it all the way through from one level all the way up to the top, including where I am now just wanting to make $30 on a, on a Sunday, which is really kind of incredible. And I, I think, I think that I had it. I mean, I think that I had the characteristics. Um, I did have the confidence. Um, I had the courage on the football field, which I think is important. Um, communication is a huge issue, whether it's with players or whether it's with coaches or whether it's with your own uh, group of officials, that's extremely important. And um, and I also kind of just got very interested in the rules. Um, and and I for some reason, it just they they fascinated me. And and I wanted to be the Einstein of, of football rules. And I wanted to be that person that you call on the field. They call you the go to guy. That's the guy that if there is a question about the rule, even if you're not the referee, you go to him or you're the guy that has the confidence to step in and say, no, this is what we have to do. This is what the rule states. And those to me, you know, are the important qualities. And of course, the other thing is the big thing that turns off people um, early on that start to officiate is the sportsmanship, is the yelling, is all the noise. And it could come from the sideline, but the worst groups, the parents. And it's the ability of a person just to tune it out. You know, and I adopted the philosophy early on, or I should say the thinking early on is that the people that are screaming the loudest know the least. And that when I'm out on the football field, I know more than anybody else 
other than my officiating group, anybody else that yelling at me. So you just take it like, okay, not going to bother me because I know I'm right. Or I know I'm, I'm, uh, I know more than them. And so that was, uh, that's kind of a nutshell answer to your question. Perfect answer. Bill, fire away with some questions. I don't have many questions, but let me set it up this way. There are today hundreds of people on the internet who believe they're you, Mike, uh, that, you know, director of officiating and, uh, and, and, and have lots of opinions about rules and whether they were enforced correctly or not. Tell us and tell our, our listeners what the approved rulings are, because very few people and certainly none on the internet know about that. So maybe we'll help them a little bit. You're using the word internet politely. (laughs) You call it social media and I call it anti-social media. (laughs) Bill Bill is slowly moving from the internet to social media. It's been a process. Yeah. It's amazing the amount of people that are sitting in the basement of their parents' house who tell me that I'm wrong all the time. Um, But, you know, I think the little known thing about approved rulings, we call them ARs, is there are rules and then there are approved rulings. So you take a rule and then an approved ruling, um, it could be something like uh, an intentional grounding call that uh, maybe with the clock stopped or or may create a 10 second runoff, may not create a 10 second runoff, but um, every, every rule seems like we get these expanded rulings and they're great because the officials are the ones that read these and, and they're put like in this, you think the rule book is big, let's add the case book because that's where the approved rulings go. And um, it's a very valuable um, tool for the officials because there's plays that happen all the time that you go, well, does it, uh, is it really by the letter of the law that you want this called? Or is this something that you want called a little bit different than the rule actually states. And then you get what I call, you know, wash bucket plays. Some people call them garage plays because it is the one official sit in the locker room. I mean, in their garage with some friends and go, okay, let's talk about this. A, who is the offense, the pass is intercepted by B. Now a B throws an illegal low block on the return. Um, A grabs the face mask on the tackle. And then B player is called for unsportsmanlike conduct after the play is over. And the period, by the way, went down to the time expired on the period. Well, <laughs> my philosophy was when those, when I was an official, not, not in the NFL, but before I got to the NFL, my philosophy was <laughs> simply this. This is pretty bad. But if I didn't know what it was, then nobody was going to know what it was. So I would just put the ball down and play and make an announcement and go on. I mean, and nobody, nobody was going to know if it was wrong. And I probably wasn't going to know if it was wrong either until I looked at the approved rulings um, after the after the game was over. It, it's I, I say this about the game, and I think, Bill, you would agree with me. Ninety eight percent of it is simple. Um, but two percent of it is complicated when it comes to rules, and and all of the the rule, in, you know, the rules that get misinterpreted by the officials. It's just if it happens, it's just the one 
simple, confusing issue that may come up in a game. And people say the rule book's too big. The rule book's not too big. Um, people say that the rule book, you can't understand it. Well, that's because you don't, you've never been raised on football rules. Whereas you take an NFL, an official like me, for example, I mean, I've been studying football rules since I've been, since I was 20 years old. And I got into the NFL when I was 46. Now, rules differ in high school and differ in college and differ in the NFL, but the premises are the same. And, and so once you kind of get that grasp of the premise, it's just not that complicated. It's complicated to Joe Dokes, um, but it's not complicated to the officials. Uh, Joe Dokes is a, a little-known announcer, by the way, and I'm glad you mentioned his name as opposed to some others that we know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Bill, the thing that the thing that's interesting to me, and I I kind of learned this, is that, um, and I use his name quite frankly. Um, I, I, as an official, you're used to getting criticized. Okay, that's one thing. What you didn't like in the NFL is be getting criticized by a, a, a color analyst that never officiated before. So you got an ex-quarterback, Troy Aikman, who's beating you up. And, and oftentimes he was wrong. And so that would upset me. I mean, that would upset me. That's, the, that's the, the one part of criticism that used to bother me. It was the, the media's television analysts and play-by-play people. But, you know, then I learned... Then I learned that um, by going and doing seminars at the different stations that they do want to be right. I mean, they want to be right, but they don't have the basis of knowledge to be right. And then they're a player and then they get emotional. So they make a comment or they say something that's wrong. And then if they perceive it to be wrong, it becomes a horrible call. It becomes a terrible call. How could he call that? Hey, they're the master of slow motion. They just made the call in slow motion. And, and, um, I, I learned that part of my job with the league is my position of director of officiating was to work with the media and work with our television people to try to educate them. And quite frankly, I will say this, when um, David Hill and Ed Gorin at Fox Sports hired me, that was one of their main reasons. They wanted me to educate their announcers because they said in their polls with the public that are watching their games, the second most important thing that they expected from their play-by-play and analysts uh, was rules accuracy. And it just wasn't there. And um, so even today, I mean, I send out weekly tapes. I treat them like my officials. I send them weekly tapes um, with, that have, uh, we do this in college for our college announcers at Fox and, the, and our NFL announcers with Fox, a separate tape for the NFL. And they're all education tapes. They're all cinema. And Troy, Troy very seldom now gets out of control and very seldom says bad things. But that might be because in many cases, I'm standing right next to him. <laughs> Maybe he knows I'll give him a jab in the, in right. the side. But, but his, his knowledge his knowledge is much better than it used to be. And I, I'm just, I kind of feel like with all the work we have done and Dean Blandino is with us now. So he's working with our talent too. Um, I think all the work we've done is begin to pay off. 
that is a perfect segue, Mike. Take us through, um, as director of officiating, what you did to train the officials. People always say, well, NFL officials are part-time. Uh, it's really, it's a major extension of part-time, if you want to call them part-time, because in employment circles, yes, they are considered part-time. But um, they have so much that they have to do. And with better technology, they have to do it even sooner than they had to do before. But this all starts really, they have a dark period, which people don't know about. And the dark period is part of their collective bargaining agreement. And basically from January 1 on, um, the league is not in contact with you. Unless January 1 till, I think it's, I think it might be, April 15th or something, but they're not in contact with you except for if they're going to assign you to a playoff game, um, off-season physicals, which they have to pass. They go back to New York now. They all have to go back to New York in this dark period and take a an off-season physical. But as soon as the end of that dark period hit, just a barrage of stuff um, is upon them. And Early on, it's basically rules. It's rule-based. They get sent tests. They get sent tests after tests after tests. And quite frankly, when I went to Fox, I said, would you do me a favor? Would you send me those tests so I could keep up with the rules? And then after about two weeks, I said, I don't want those damn tests anymore. I don't need to know all those crazy wash bucket situations. But there is clinics, so they have a clinic. Um, because of the pandemic, they haven't been able to hold them in person for two years, but I'm sure they'll be able to go back next year. But a clinic is a three-day process in uh, Dallas where they go over all videos, all different kinds of things. They have uh, nutritionists that talk to them about their health. Um, you have more physicals that are done at the clinic. Um, and then they go to training camps and they spend time in training camps with the teams. And, and all of this, of course, with preseason, it all kicks in. And I often would call, when I brought in new officials, um, there were two calls that, that I made. Um, I made the call to the official who I would basically grant his wish, um, his dream to get into the NFL. And then after I got through that call that was always pretty emotional, um, I would call the guy's wife. And I would, I would warn the wife that things are going to change, that it is not college football, that the demands on your husband are going to be far more than they've ever been. And the anxiety that your husband is going to go through when he waits to get his grades from the league office every week, I said, is going to be different. And I said, but you, here's what you need to do. You need to rationalize this as this is a job. This is no longer, he's not doing this for fun. This is a job. And there's pension benefits. There's all kinds of benefits. So it's a second job. And it's a pretty damn good paying job. So if he really is to the point where he wants to think about quitting his other job and, and taking this thing on, he probably can, which a lot of officials do. But boy, once that season hits, you know, it's like, okay, you have the game. Can I go to the, can I go to the airport and have a drink um, after the game? Because I can't drink from Friday midnight up until the conclusion of my game. And at the, air, at the airport, um, 
you know, now it's like, okay, here you go. Here's the disc of your game. When you get in the airplane, evaluate it. So they're evaluating their performance um, right from the get-go. And then the league starts on Monday evaluating their performance also. And so all of the calls that are made, all of the calls that should have been made, um, those that I referred to as iffy, um, you know, you're reviewing those also. Maybe they were made and they you feel like, okay, technically they are made, but you know, you did make it, but could you have gone without making that call? All of that, they have to prepare responses for all of this stuff. So they go home and start breaking down their games and their performance. They answer the questions that come from the league office. Boom, here comes the, the, the damn test again because they're tested every week during the season rules-wise also. Then come the videotapes from their position trainers because they all have position trainers who will send those, the videos to them breaking down play specific plays to their position. Then there is a general tape that is a replay tape. And then there is the preparation for the game coming maybe even on Thursday, um, but it could be mostly Sunday. So there's the preparation of looking at that video um, from, the, um, from the two teams that you're going to officiate. And of course there is the, you know, the physical aspect of it. And, you know, I was like, I, I was like, I mean, I think officials really thought I was an ass to tell you the truth when it came to um, your physical um, stature or your how you feel and being in shape, because I've always lived under the philosophy that if you don't feel 100%, you can't officiate to the level of 100%. If you're in Jacksonville in September and it's hotter than hell, and you're sitting there going, oh, my God, I'm tired. I don't feel good. Well, guess what? Boom. That's how fast plays happen. And you can't officiate to the best of your ability. But this is ongoing. And even in that dark period, San Diego has a group of Southern California officials that during the dark period meet and go over tests. Most areas of the country do have those. So honestly, it's close. They're drug tested two or three times a year by surprise. Uh, and, and they're just under the eye all the time. Um, not to change the subject necessarily, but Tim Donahue might have done the NFL a favor because I remember Roger Goodell coming to me. And, of course, we're talking about the NBA, Tim Donahue. Um, Roger, Roger Goodell came to me and said, um, okay, the good news is it didn't happen to us. But let's pretend it did, which I thought was brilliant on his part. So we examined everything. And, you know, we used to give assignments out for the entire season. They said, well, we don't want to do that because maybe some gambler could say, hey, I know that uh, Johnny Appleby, um, Johnny Appleby is going to be in Minnesota 12 weeks from now. We got a lot of time to get to him. So we stopped releasing the schedule. We started uh, doing background checks every year. We started to monitor things. Um, and, and I think that was smart. So they're always under the gun, quite frankly. And it is a, a tough job with a lot of demands. But the damn pension's pretty good, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually the balance. And that of the director of officiating. I know that. And I, I remember when I started out in the job and I became the head guy, I remember I, went, I used to go to games. And then nothing kind of made me feel 
kind of worse than than I get on an airplane to go home and I'm in the center seat and row 25 and I get on and there's four officials in first class um, flying home. And I'm going, wait a minute, I, I think I'm your boss. I think I'm your boss. And I went to Roger Goodell and said, Roger, my guys who I'm in charge of, who I teach, they work for me. They're flying first class and I'm flying coach. And Roger goes, so what's the problem? You know? <laughs> so you decided to stay home. That's why you stayed in New York. Right. I was, was going to say that that probably is because Roger has never flown coach himself and has no idea what it's like back there. That, that again, is a perfect segue into your job and 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 what the what's what's required of the director of officiating on a on a on a weekly basis during the season well i would say this i think it's impossible i think it's an impossible job unless you have like an unbelievable amount of very competent assistance um but you know art mcnally going into the hall of fame is so deserved because he did it for 24 years and Bill, you know how he worked with techs and developed the original instant replay program and the evaluation systems. I mean, Art McNally is, uh, is, is, is a person that could never be duplicated again. I mean, the, the pressures now of this job, um, including having to deal with your own officials union, is enormous because you're, you not only have to do all these things to your own officiating staff, but you have all the other outside issues that you have to deal with, the coaches who send in questions um, and, and sometimes lots of questions, diving through those to get in them the answers, to making those videos that, that go out, to, to do the assigning, to do all of this stuff. I mean, it's enormous. And then, of course, you know, after 9-11, that was kind of when um, we decided that we never had we never had really good coverage in case something like that did happen. We didn't have a command center in New York, period. So then we decided at that point, let's at least do an officiating command center. So if something happens at one of our stadiums, we can help deal with it. So that meant then I was in for every game. I mean, every single solitary game. And a typical day for me, like on a Sunday, was – um, you know, on the East Coast, the games don't start at one till one. That's the good. Th that's a good thing. Um, but the bad thing is they don't end till after midnight or one o'clock in the morning if it's a Sunday night game. And so I would have to be there for everyone. So I would go through all my duties that I had to go through. And then Roger always wanted on Monday morning, they always wanted a video on his desk with the controversies from um the, the week from that Sunday specifically. So I would do a video at one o'clock in the morning and then I would take one, take them and duplicate the disc and put them, I put one on that was not as advanced as it is now, put one on Roger's desk, one on Joe Brown's desk, one on Greg Aiello's desk, one on Jeff Pastesh's desk. And then, so they would be knowledgeable at everything. I mean, I honestly, um, it, it, it seems, kind of bizarre, but I, I like figured that I worked hundred hour days for ever. And, um, and part of it too, just on a personal side, I guess, is that I moved back there by myself. So I knew no one. I mean, I came from Sacramento, California and my wife 
sweet thing she is, she said, I'm not moving because this job's too big for you. They'll fire you. <laughs> and so I literally was back there for five years by myself. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. So I would, I had an apartment. I'd be in at six o'clock in the morning and even in the off season and leave at eight o'clock at night. And my wife and I had only been married for a year and I only saw her about three days a month, um, which you could say is bad, but then, you know, for five years, the only thing I would say is you could say it's good too, because every three day span felt like a honeymoon again. Right. And, uh, but it's, it, it's enormous and it's just not the same. I mean, what art accomplished is, is crazy, but think about since Jerry Seaman, Jerry Seaman did it for 10 and then I did it for basically was in there for 12. And, and then you look at it since 2010 and there has been uh, Carl Johnson, there has been Dean Blandino, there has been Al Riveron, there is now Walt Anderson. You've had four in the last basically 12 years, which I happen to think is not good. It's tough on continuity when it comes to the officials getting the same message from the same person for an extended period of time. But that's the pressures of the job and how hard it is to do, hard, hard, how hard it is to deal with, you know, coaches. And I'll tell this story and then I'll shut up. I talk too much. Keep talking. This is what our this is what we want. Our listeners need to hear this. Yeah. I, 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 and it is a podcast, so I can use an inappropriate word. But I went to Wellington Mara's wake. And I was in the wake, and and and, and uh, I looked across, and, and Bill Belichick was there. There's a lot of people, and um, and I ended up walking out. The way we walked out, I ended up next to Belichick when we walked out, and he said to me, he said, Mike, I looked across at you. You look like shit. <laughs> we know the man doesn't beat around the bush. Yeah. yeah. And I went, what? And he goes, I'm telling you, you look like shit. And he said, and I was looking at you, I was realizing one thing. And Bill, you would appreciate this. You never win, do you? I mean, I hadn't thought about it that way. He said, you deal with 16 losers every week, don't you? In a full slate of games. And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, you know, when you're coaching or when you're general managing or when you're president, when you win, it's euphoric. It's absolutely euphoric. And when you lose, it's devastating. And he said, I looked across at you and, and I realized that you never win. And I thought, wow, that's pretty nice. He also said, I'm going to call you. I'm, I'm going to call you sometime when there's some controversy out there. I'm just going to call you and, and tell you, hey, forget that stuff that's being said. You're doing a good job. I said, thank you. I'm still waiting for that call. <laughs> 2021. Well, he's busy too. At least he did say that, which I was like, true, because you do get, <laughs> you get beat up. You get beat up by the losers, and sometimes you get beat up by the the winners. And when I was young in this job, um, my defense mechanism getting beat up was to argue, and I found that was not going to work that their personalities were stronger than mine. And I learned a valuable skill. You might know it, might not realize it with the amount that I'm talking in this thing, but I learned how to listen. I did how to learn how to listen. And I learned how passionate they are. And I learned how 
how devastating losses are. So I, I changed my strategy. I got to know all the coaches' assistants. I mean, I'd send them little things. A head coach would never know, and uh, especially some that were bad. And so they became my my friends. And so, you know, John Fox was an example in Carolina. He would come in on Monday morning and scream at his assistant, get Pereira on the phone. She would pick up the phone, hit a few buttons, and then go, um, oh, he's not in? Okay, well, um, do you know what time to expect him? <laughs> okay, okay, thanks. And then she'd tell Foxy, well, he's not going to be in until 1 o'clock. Well, by the time 1 o'clock hit, he wasn't quite as mad by the time 1 o'clock hit. But it, it, We're, He's worrying about the next game then. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough deal, tough job. See, Bill, that explains why you went to voicemail so many times. <laughs> <laughs> Bill was, Bill was, you know, and, and Bill and I laugh about this. Bill was tough. But my problem with Bill was he knew too much. You know, <laughs> he came from the league, so he understood, after being in the league for years, he understood the happenings of the league, and he understood everything. So it was hard to argue, and he's Irish, and he's got the temper. But the beauty was we would get into some pretty good arguments and stuff, but then we go to the competition and play golf, competition committee and play golf and have a nice time. And my wife and Eileen and Bill would get together and and it was great. But it just shows you, it just shows you the the, the incredible passion there is in this game from all aspects, whether it's players or officiating or coaches or GMs or owners. Um, it's just a it's such a passionate feeling that people have about the game, which is makes it so great. Yeah. You know, along those same lines, you know, people need to feel for officials because not only do they never win, but they only get noticed on what everybody thinks are the wrong calls. You make the right calls. No one cares. They're just sitting there watching the game go. So that's tough. The difficult part is, is that nobody expects a player to be perfect. Um, nobody expects a player to catch every pass nobody expects a running back to go through the entire season without a fumble. Nobody expects a coach not to call a bad play, but everybody expects officials to be perfect. And, and, and so the, the thing is, you know that, but there's no such thing as a perfect game when it comes to officiating. There just isn't. Bill knows. I mean, he would watch games as close as anybody. It's, it's, it's almost like it's stacked against you. There's seven officials trying to officiate 22 players. And, and while we think about the number of decisions, I used to grade the um, performance by a crew on just how many plays that they got right. So if you had, for example, 100 plays in a game, that's not the true number. It's more 150 some odd. But if you have 100 plays and you get 98 of those right, Pretty simple. Your accuracy rate's 98%. But the thing is, you know, people don't realize is within a play, there's probably 15 decisions that you have to make within every play. I mean, you could start from the beginning. Is the formation legal? Is the motion man cutting up field? And then you've got the play at the line of scrimmage. You know, is this holding? Is this illegal contact? Is because you get all these collisions. And and they're, they are actually unbelievably accurate. Um, but the expectation is unrealistic, but you know, we also know success for us. It doesn't involve accolades. Success for us just involves silence. That's all. 
So, you know, I mean, that's why I used to judge thing. You go through and you read the paper, you read the article about the game you officiated. You read the article, not a comment is made about officiating success. And that's the way it should be. Mike, uh, take our listeners through the major rules, offensive holding, DPI, OPI, illegal contact, and, and explain the, the the rule is written, the philosophy of how it's called, degree of restriction, et cetera, things that fans never hear or know about, and, and we only know about if you're lucky enough to be on a competition committee. Yeah. You, you, have, you have to know that within the rule book, there are in, in elements, let's just take offensive, let's take pass interference, period, and offensive holding. Um, there's phrases in there that make it tough. Okay. So significantly restrict. Okay, that's a broad statement now, because what that's basically saying, and we're talking offensive holding here, a restriction is not always holding. And then you get into the passing game, interference is based upon significantly hindering a receiver's ability to make the catch. So that's what makes some of these calls so difficult. You know, people kind of don't understand that in the rule book that Bill studied along with me offensive holding, which to me is impossible because basically you have two people officiating five. And so then the book says, okay, we got to address this. So if it's a double team block, if the offense takes two to block one, get away from that. Don't even look at it. Go to the other side where you got single blocks. And then of course, if it significantly restricts. So what's that mean? That's a hard one to define. Because what is significantly, what is not a restriction, enough of a restriction on one play could be enough in another if it happens right at the point of attack, which is really where the focus should be. So you have to have an action that is basically not necessarily outside the frame. You still could be inside the frame, but if you have jersey grab and that guy tries to get away, and then you all of a sudden that grab comes into view and it's right at the point of attack, that's holding. But it's very judgmental. And I think last year, just so you kind of know where we are right now, the philosophy going into the pandemic year was Walt Anderson's first year. He said to the officials, he said, make them big. We're talking about holding here too. Make them big. You know what you, you know what that you know what happens when you tell an official to make them big? That's an escape mechanism. Well, I didn't call it because it wasn't big enough. So what happened um, last year in week one, we had 18 calls, 18 holding calls, offensive holding calls in 16 games. I think most people thought for the whole year when the number of holding calls went down 355 from the year before, most people thought that this had gone too far. And so now in a regular year and Walt Anderson focusing more on the point of attack, 18 in week one in 2020, 52 in week one of 2021. So holding is a tough one. And defensive pass interference and offensive pass interference is another because I maintain it's the hardest call to make. Because Mike, let me, let me just interject one moment and, and for our listeners, reiterate, just like we used to do at the competition committee, we got a play that takes place. We, we got a running play. So the first thing that happens for the official is, was there a double team? 
if there is a double team, we don't have a foul unless it's a personal foul. Correct? Correct. Go away from it. Okay. Let's get to the point of attack. At the point of attack, and this is where coaches and, and knowledgeable executives on the competition committee marry with the officiating office, which no one, people outside that realm don't understand. The coaches teach, offensive line coaches teach the offensive linemen to grab cloth, grab the jersey, and hold on and steer. And if you're inside the frame of the defender's body, meaning your hands are not outside of his body, you guys let that go, correct? If you if you can grab Jersey and keep him in front of you, then you're you've done a good job, even though you grab two handfuls of Jersey. But if the guy tries to get away and starts to get away and gets outside your frame, then you got to let go. Mm -hmm. Or it's a foul. Right. When people say you can hold holding on every play. <laughs> no, you can't. No, you can't. Because there isn't one on a double team. Right. 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 And there isn't one just because you grab the Jersey. Right. There can only be holding if it's outside the frame and or there is a material restriction. Am I correct with material? Yes, you are. Okay, material. I, I, I'm not as up on them as it used to be. But it is material. Yeah, material restriction. Then you have holding. So this nonsense that, oh, yeah, you can hold only on every play. No, you can't. Right. So, um, and Bill has let us know that. Uh, before that that is a uh, a myth that circulates but is just that is a myth what is shaking we've got exciting news on the pod we're partnering with playactionpools.com this season to bring some interactive fun to the sports we love most you'll be able to get in on the action with our playactionpools.com football pick'em challenge which is open to everyone so here's how it works sign up for the contest believe football pick'em at playactionpools.com and then you'll get your picks in each week we're going to select the 10 highest profile games of the week between NFL and college football. Whoever gets the most picks correct each week will win a pair of electric sunglasses and a pair of DC shoes. Again, go to playactionpools.com and sign up for the contest Believe, B-L-E-A-V, football pick'em. And if you plan on hosting your own football contest, go to playactionpools today. They've got Survivor, Pick'em, and an unbelievably cool new sportsbook-style concept called Build Your Bankroll. Playactionpools.com, your new home for all your office sports pools. I, I'm I'm interested in this uh, because when you gave your explanation as a lawyer, you know, there's the rules, which are like that's statutory law, right? Passed by the legislature's black law, black letter laws, black and white. And then things happen in real life and courts have to apply the facts and the law and they come up with rulings. And that's how the law grows and becomes an, a living thing. It's just like you have the rule book, and then you have approved rulings. So my question about that with the, you know, and we all know what we're talking about, keeping like sort of inside the guy's shoulder pad, keeping me in front of you. Is that actually written? Does that come out of an approved ruling? Where does that delineation occur that that is not holding? Well, I don't think that one in itself is in there, but it's just the known that's been the philosophy that's used for a long time. Look, at the rules started out where you had to block like this. You had to have open hands. I mean, if you're going to have to have, if you're going to have open hands and you can't, you couldn't even close your fist. You had that open hand. If you can't grab, you can't, you're not going to be able to block. And we don't want quarterbacks getting beat up. 
you know, and so you, you got to allow some things there. Um, but there are things like Bill has said, not on the double team. If, if the um, defender uses a rip technique, you know, the rip technique where he throws an arm under and all of a sudden that blocker's arm is out around his neck, but the rip technique, the, the, the um, defender's the one that causes that that's not holding unless you take his feet away. Um, I, I think it's, there's, there's always, and I think there always should be common sense um, when it comes to application of the rules. Um, Bill mentioned illegal contact. That was an interesting one to me because that rule basically states that, you know, you cannot contact a, a defender, cannot contact a receiver more than five yards downfield with the um, quarterback in the pocket. Uh, when the rule came in, there were a lot of illegal contact calls. And then all of a sudden the numbers started trickling down. And then you look at a rule and say, okay, if the numbers are trickling down, what effect does this have, is it having in the game? So then you would see this number of illegal contact, uh, illegal contact calls and defensive holding calls go down. And then all of a sudden you're looking that the offensive numbers were going down. So receivers weren't getting the opportunity to uh, run their routes properly. And I think, Bill, the, the illegal contact calls like were down, like in 2003, we're down to 37. Offensive numbers were down. And the committee said we have to emphasize the existing rule, not change a rule, emphasize the existing rule of illegal contact. And in 2004, I believe it was, the number went up to 191. And the points went back up. And, uh, and again, this was the committee saying, we've got to enforce certain rules that are having a negative impact in the game by lack of enforcement. Um, and so, and that one to me is, was easy, is easier. The rules a little bit easier. Although here's another one though. You look at this and say, okay, seems simple. You can't, you can't contact an offensive player beyond five yards when the quarterback's in the pocket. But this is a deep official that's looking at, looking at this, and the restriction goes away when the quarterback throws the ball. So when the ball's in the air, it's either pass interference or nothing if it's thrown to that player, or if it's thrown to the opposite side, it's nothing by rule. And so here you have this poor guy that's downfield on the sideline, and he sees this contact. What's he got to do? He's got to look back and find the quarterback. And so then he's got to make a judgment okay, was the ball out of his hands then or was it still in his hands? It's a it's a real tough one to officiate in pass interference, you know, Bill. That to me was the toughest. Of course, I was one of those guys that had to call those and everything was moving. Everything was moving. I mean, the receiver's moving, the defender's moving, the ball, and and you're moving in most cases. And, and so then you have to make a judgment, you know, Okay, did, did it significantly hinder the receiver's ability to make it? Was the pass catchable? You have all these ifs and ifs and whats and wins and all these types of things that make it make it so difficult that, you know, they tried to make it reviewable a couple of years ago, and it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. It didn't have to be a disaster, in my opinion. And Bill, I think, would not have tolerated this if he was still on the committee because they made it reviewable, but they had the, the decision on whether it was or not held that's a different standard than on the field. It had to be big and obvious. 
So then you got poor Al River on, River on the obstacles. Yeah, you know, that's pass interference. Mm-hmm. But is it as big as they want as they want it to be when it comes to making the call and replay and it fell flat on their face instead of saying it is or it isn't? Um, and then I think it would have been relatively easy. But guys like me in the booth were going, they they not call pass interference and you they'd replay it and the coach would challenge it and they'd replay it and it's pass interference and it wouldn't get called because it wasn't big enough. <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like crazy. And pass interference is so hard. My first year, my first pass interference call was in Dallas against Dallas. I was on Mike Carey's crew and I throw a flag against Dallas. And, and this is the crap that happens on the field that nobody would ever know. But I throw, it's my first pass interference call. I throw the flag. The headlinesman, Ernie France, worked, worked a bunch of Super Bowl, comes up to me and says, what do you got? I said, pass interference is not a good call. He went straight up. The defender went straight up. Went, You're kidding me. I mean, my carry hasn't even got to me yet. Johnny Robin, I was the rookie. John Robeson, great back judge. He comes over, what do you got? I said, I got pass interference. He said, good call. He played through his back. <laughs> now, I'm, I haven't even talked to the referee yet, and I've had – the linesman tell me it was a crappy call, and the back judge says it was a good call. And Mike Carey comes up to me and says, what do you got? And I go, I, I don't know what I got. <laughs> Ernie tells me it's not pass interference, and John tells me it is pass interference. And he goes, I remember he goes, well, what do you got? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going with pass interference. He said, okay, what number? I went, I have no idea. On the field. And he goes, he goes, well, how about number 31? And so I said, well, if you knew, why'd you ask me? You know, I, mean, I was so, I was so flustered at this point, but interference um, <laughs> to me. And I, I, I am one that likes the college rule better. And I know Bill doesn't because nobody wants to take the deep vertical passing game away but I would sit in my office too many times and look at calls that were made that were 40-yard mistakes, 40-yard mistakes, even maybe more, you know, and then 40-yard plays where it should have been and wasn't called, and I just felt like it even added a layer of pressure on the officials. And, and you know, the argument always was you're, if you're beat, you know, you'll tackle them, which I Absolutely. understand. Yeah. You know, although that doesn't happen very much in college football with with the rule 15 being a max 50, but I get it. But it's just uh, it's just a really tough call, really tough call. Mike, uh, let's stay with the, with with PI because that's the probably the most controversial call for fans and and media alike. Um, there are certain the committee and, and the officiating department work together to create certain. Um, definitions of restriction like arm bars and things like that that are, are, are indications and almost automatically foul. So talk us through that, if you would, please. You know, it's interesting because when I went back to work in the league in 98, I had nothing to do. I mean, I, mean, I had not, nothing to do outside of football. So um, I immediately was the first guy always in the office at 6.30 in the morning. And then I didn't have anybody to talk to afterwards, so I'd stay till 8, 30, 9, 10. And the one thing I decided to do, knowing how difficult interference was to call, is to look through every pass interference play from the year before, from 1997, 
and see if I could plop them into categories. And so I would start and I'd look and I'd see, you know, I'd see contact through the back before the ball arrives. Simple. It's contact through the back. Um, I would see um, a hook and turn. So a hook and turn, meaning that a defender would grab the receiver like around the waist and then turn him before the ball arrived. I'd have contact. I'd say, oh, there's one contact by a defender not playing the ball. I'd see an arm bar. So arm bar is strictly when you're when the defender and the receiver are running side by side, the defender sticks an arm out to basically hold back the receiver, even when he's looking for the ball, but he's restricting his ability. It's not a feel. It's an arm bar, restricting his ability to get to the ball. A cutoff. I mean, that would be one where the defender would play into the receiver, and just as he's making, he's cutting off his path to the ball, and just as he's uh, making that contact, he turns around and looks at the ball. So it would appear that they're both playing the ball, but in fact, he cut him off before he turned around. And so I, I went through hundreds of plays because I didn't have anything to do, and I developed these six categories. And, um, and so I said to the officials at the clinic, let's put every one of these, every one of your calls into a category. And then I went to the, to the teams, and I remember I going through the Miami Dolphins and seeing Jimmy Johnson and his staff. And I explained to them the six categories of, uh, of defensive pass interference, and I remember him writing a letter to uh, – he wrote a letter to Paul Tagliabu and said it was the best session that we've ever had with, that the officiating department has ever had with his staff because it made sense to everybody. And those categories are still in the book. Now, there are other weird ones that come up, but 90% of them fall into those categories. And, and so we put them into the book. I mean, this is actually in the rule book, not in the ARs, but actually in the rule book, just describing these categories and the officials try to fit them in. And then we taught the clubs the same thing taught the coaching staffs the same same thing. So um, if there's a call on the field and the, the, the coach says, what did he do? Well, the official just doesn't say, well, he interfered with him. He said he cut him off. It was a cutoff. It was an arm bar. He played through the back. So there, there was language there that both staffs and officials understood, may not agree still, but at least there was common language that we use to try to describe what was being called on the field. And, um, and that's how we actually arrived at that. And it's still in the, still in, still in vogue to still in use today. Uh, and, and, and I, I'm amazed. So many announcers don't understand that they, they simply don't. You see an arm bar and you say, Oh my goodness, that's a foul. What did he do? He didn't do anything for goodness sake or, Explain playing uh, a, a guy who's in trail technique looking for the ball and, and what's required. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we always used to, you see, you always have indicators, you know. I mean, there's always kind of indicators. You know, um, not playing the ball is an indicator. I mean, if you're not playing the ball, that's an indicator. Not necessarily a foul. I mean, the old, the old days you couldn't, right, Bill? You couldn't stick up your hands and, and right, face guard. But that's gone completely out of football now, including now in the high school level. There has to be contact. 
Um, so when you're in a chase position and you're not playing the ball and you make contact, you, you, you're almost always guilty. I mean, even if the contact maybe isn't as much as it might take in a normal thing, if you're beaten and you're chasing, then, you know, you're, you're suspect. And we always try to say, if you're in a chase, that's your first problem. And then the other thing is there's chase. There's always more of a tendency to grab. And when you're in a chase, the one thing that you do see, and this was another category, inside arm grabs. When you're in a chase, you're always reaching out. So that's when you're likely not running side by side, but chase, you're reaching out, reaching out and grabbing. And if you grab the arm and hold the arm down inside arm grab, that's a foul. But then, of course, you have chase positions where the defender's chasing and you tangle feet. And if you tangle feet, that's not you. You haven't essentially deliberately tried to interfere. I mean, that's incidental. That happens. Now, the rule book makes it tough because the rule book says when it comes to tangle feet, if both players are looking back for the ball and the feet tangle, not a foul. If the feet tangle and neither are looking for the ball, it's a foul. It's not a foul. But if one's looking, if the receiver's looking at the ball and you're the defender and you're not and your feet tangle, then it's a foul. Now process that in your mind as an official. I mean, that's why anytime there's tangled feet, you're going to have incidental contact. I mean, it's almost impossible to determine, you know, which one was looking for the ball at the actual time that the feet tangled. Um, but, but being in a chase is, uh, is, is that's the automatic thing as an official that that's that indicator that you're um, looking at. How about uh, one that you hear on broadcasts all the time in which, you know, uh, both play-by-play and color commentators opine is what they'll call hand fighting. And they'll say, oh, they're hand fighting. And if it's no call, someone will say, oh, the officials are letting them play this week. And then if some, if they call it, then they'll say, oh, this is, this is, this is a tight game. What's up there? Well, I mean, you know, look at hand fighting. I call them feels, you know, if you're both running down the field and you're both kind of swatting at each other and it doesn't really restrict anything. I mean, we don't want to call that. You don't want to call that. It really doesn't even fall to the level of interference because it really doesn't restrict either the offense or the defensive player to any degree. Um, so I, I, again, remember now significantly hinder, significantly hinder. And if two guys are fighting hand fighting, you know, it's just like, okay, let them hand fight downfield, let them feel downfield. Offensive pass interference, you know, push off. What's a, you know, what's a hand fight versus a push off? You know, how do you distinguish that? And um, you know, we've always felt like, okay, the best way to distinguish that when you're talking about a push off is, you know, does the offensive player fully extend his arm? So not this is not just kind of a your a bent arm here is not what you're looking for for a push off the extended arm if it gets fully extended and creates separation that's what you are looking for but you know I mean you hit upon the number one issue whether it's a Bill Polian or whether it's a Bill Belichick or or whether it's um, a Joe Judge or whatever everybody's looking for consistency. Everybody's looking for consistency, and it's fair. And there's really, to me, consistency varies, and that's the nature of the beast. You got 130 people, and trying to teach something that is gray is difficult. 
Right. And some people see more things than other. That's just the way it is. They're not at all the same level, you know, when it comes to ability. I mean, it's just different. And so you're going to get inconsistencies. It's the way it is. My thing with consistency was not so much crew from crew A to crew B, from one crew coming into, I mean, yeah, it was a concern, but one coming, one crew coming into the Colts and working a game and ended up with eight fouls in the game and another crew comes in and the next week and they, they call 18 fouls a game. And, uh, and, 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 and there could be 10 more fouls in the game. It could be that, but the consistency level from one crew to another is hard. My thing with consistency is the game needs to be officiated the same way in the opening quarter as it is in the last quarter. So if you're going to call offside and the kickoff in the first quarter, you better damn well be calling it in the fourth quarter also that you're, you're, you need to refine the judgment of your crew to the point where you officiate the game the same way for four quarters. Don't make a call with five minutes to go in the first quarter and then not make that same call with five minutes to go in the fourth quarter because maybe it affects the game more. I mean, you, you have to officiate the game consistently. At least that gives the team shouldn't have to adjust, you know, from one crew to the other, although teams study incoming crews. Um, they do that. They study tendencies of crews, just like they study tendencies of their opponents. But I know if I was a coach, I'd be saying that you call in the first quarter, then we'll adjust to what you're calling it, but call it the same in the fourth quarter. Amen. Take us through the protection of the quarterback, roughing the quarterback. That's another very controversial one. Explain the rule and, and, and the mechanics of officiating, please. Well, let me, let, me, let me even start a little earlier than that. I mean, it was apparent to me, beginning really like in 94, that the, the, the movement became with the competition committee um, and the league uh, that the quarterback needed to be protected. I mean, he often is the case he's the franchise. And, um, and if your starting quarterback is, is playing, it's better football than if your backup playing, the quarterback is playing. And he is, he puts himself in the most vulnerable position than any other player in the league on, on the team. Maybe you could say the kicker um, who, who gets into positions that he can't protect himself. And so therefore, uh, the real emphasis started around 94, Bill, I think it was, where we started putting things into the rule book, saying, you know, when it is a foul. And, um, and the goal, I mean, the goal was to protect that player. And so in pop these rules that are not ARs, they're actually rules that, you know, with the quarterback in a passing posture, um, you only get one step after the release of the ball. And if your contact comes simultaneously with his second step or after the second step, then it's late, period. Um, we, you have the rules that said he's a defenseless player. He's one of the many defenseless players. So you can't hit him, hit the quarterback when he is defenseless. You can't hit him in the head or neck area with your helmet, shoulder, or forearm, period, head or neck. And then, um, obviously, this rule has come in about illegal use of the helmet. You can't lower your head and hit him with the crown of the helmet. Um, there's, there's just a, there's 
a lot of things. You can't hit them low. I mean, that that emphasis kind of came. I think it was there even before Tom Brady got hurt. Um, but it even expanded to even if you went to the ground, you couldn't lunge and make forcible contact on the quarterback in the knee area or below. Um, it, it's just uh, it's just it's better football and your skilled players, obviously. And, and, and the referees, it's like, OK, boom, that's your guy. That's your guy. You know, don't get caught doing this and looking at a maybe a block when your quarterback is threatened. That's your guy. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes if I'm the referee, if you could imagine this and I'm looking this way and the quarterback's back is to me, he gets hit from the other direction. And I don't know. I can't tell. And so I'd get basically blocked out of the call. So now they said, well, we've got the umpire in the offensive backfield. Let's open it up to the umpire. And now he can call roughing the passer because he gets the look from the front side. But it was the, the one thing I will say, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about the competition committee. Um, but the one thing I would say is player safety was a huge issue with them always. And, um, and any rule that was recommended for the most part that involved player safety always went because if it, if, it, if I suggested a rule change, and some people might be interested, how does that happen? I mean, how do rule changes happen? Well, rule changes could come from a number of places. I mean, it could come from the public. A guy sends in a, 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 a suggestion. It, it could be that, that it ends up going in front of the committee. It could be that, that I do in the officiating department. We see so much stuff that we may recommend. I used to love to do it, by the way. Um, we would recommend rule changes. And 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 then if I recommended a rule change or the officiating department rec, uh, recommended a rule change, if the competition committee didn't like it, then they wouldn't put it forward to the ownership to vote for. And then the committee sends out a marvelous survey to all the clubs in the off season, asking them all kinds of questions that only part are about rules, but a significant part of it is about rules. And how do the clubs feel about how they're officiating pass interference, how they're officiating offensive holding? Um, are there any changes that a club would make? And if a club, basically, if a club um, offers a rule change proposal, that has to go to the ownership. I think I'm right about that, Bill. Unless That's they correct. Yeah. As long as it's timely, yeah. Yeah, unless they rescind it or so. So, and, and the competition committee... I mean, it's like not like sometimes I wish it used to be, but it's not. I don't mean that. I mean, sometimes it's not like they say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Competition committee would say, hey, Pereira, get us 40 plays to look at. And so they would look at plays and plays and plays and plays before they would make their decision on whether or not to back a change or not, because the committee itself will say, Okay. Um, yeah. On by a vote to seven and two, we th seven to two. We think this is a good change. We recommend it. Doesn't mean the owners are going to take their recommendation, but they still just get to recommend it. They don't get to pass it themselves. Um, but it's a a sound process that rules go through to get changed. And 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 honestly, I I mean. I loved working with the committee, partly because we used to meet down there at, at uh, 
down in Florida and <laughs> in Naples and uh and go to remember that old fish place, man? The, yeah. the fish place I used to love to go to, uh whatever that place was, but they used to sit us at the tables in the parking lot. It was so crowded. I mean, honestly, you'd be sitting there eating and up would drive a 1992 Jeep Cherokee right in your face. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I can't, I, now I, the name is slipping me, but I can't, can't remember the name of the place. But anyway, um, but what I loved at the committee, it was really fun. And the committee understands. I mean, the committee, which is made up of owners and, and club executives and coaches, um, they understand the difficulty because we, the, at least in my day, and I assure, assume it's happening again, holding was a classic example. You take 30 plays and show the committee and say you'd show the play and then you'd make them vote secretly. They would vote. And then you'd say, okay, at the end, let's see, how'd you vote? And, and most of them would be 5-4. And so, you go, well, how do you expect us to officiate this when you can't even figure out what it? That's how, that's how hard. That's how hard it actually is. But the, the the committee, that committee, to me, is the most important committee in the league um, because it's the game. It's the game. It's not the money. Um, it's it's the game. And um, I think the 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 points of emphasis. Now that's something that committee can do themselves basically, although it has to be approved in the report by the owners, but the points of emphasis are right. And, um, and it's when I always said most more often than not, a point of emphasis has a more dramatic effect on what you see at a game than a rule change. And, um, you know, we're going through this now with, uh, um, taunting, um, this needed to be a point of emphasis. I mean, because it had gotten out of hand. And the reason it needed to be a point of emphasis is because it creates ill will. And so now as officials, you're 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 they've allowed this taunting to go along it go on. And now there's chippy stuff after every play, and you're fighting just to try to keep order. And that shouldn't be what you have to do. And that's what taunting creates this ill will between um be, between players like this and 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 honestly they they let for the last five years i don't know they've let 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 players get away with too much when it comes to taunting you know and people people say well you don't know the the official doesn't know whether a guy's actually taunting or if he's a buddy of the guy when they're helmet officials know i mean they know when it's preposterous that's preposterous. It just kind of it's kind of insane. But this this needed to be cleaned up. And and uh, you know, I I'm always in that corner. Of course, I was the guy that I used to say I was the duly appointed president of the No Fun League because I hate celebrations too. But that's and so I used to say, let's make this a penalty. You can't go to the ground and and and, and the committee kind of backed all that stuff and and this because again, that's that's sportsmanship. That's that's taunting in a different way. You do something good and then you're taunting your opponent for doing it. But um, I got impeached at yeah. some point. <laughs> Can you explain uh, broad, more broadly how points of emphasis play into the two categories you'd already given us of the rules and ARs? Well, I mean, look at there's, 
there's, I mean, and that's a, you use the word. Um, to me, I think officiating is a mix of art and science. Um, science is a rule. The art is the ability to know when something has to be called and when it doesn't have to be called. And that's all over the place, whether it's right or wrong. Look, here's the big word. People go, even when you say this to coach, what, what do you mean? Well, coach, the philosophy is this. Oh, that's not a word they like to hear. Yeah. Right. Philosophy. The philosophy. What do you mean the philosophy? Well, the philosophy is, look, if the helmet of the defender is not more than half a football length across the line of scrimmage, we're not going to call it. What? Philosophy? What? What is that? And so the philosophy of when it gets down to where the game is on the line, and this happens all the time, nobody would know it, but that's just the – fine. But when the game's on the line at the end, when a receiver or runner is trying to get out of bounds, the benefit of the doubt goes to the runner. Let him go out of bounds. Even if he goes out parallel, even if he goes out a bit backwards, if he's trying to get out of bounds, let him get out of bounds. Same play in the first quarter might be different. You know what? Wind it. Let's get the game going because we do have a commissioner who's greatly concerned about the length of the game. And, uh, and so you're trying to find little tidbits of way to to pick up time. Philosophies. There's a philosophy in the college rule book. Um, I don't have it with me, but they have a whole listing of things that are philosophies. We used to have it. We don't have it necessarily anymore in the, in the NFL rule book, but it was a simple philosophy. When in doubt, the pass was incomplete. We didn't want cheap turnovers. When in doubt now is kind of harder to defend because of replay. Right. Mm -hmm. Technology. Yeah. So the, the when in doubt, you know, takes the art out of it somewhat and puts the science to it. But, you know, I mean, there's there, there was the whole when in doubt things that still are in the college rule book, but and aren't in the NFLs. But still, I mean, that'd be a, that would be a interesting session to have at the competition committee, but we discuss those things, I think, the win and doubt things, um, you know, but that's just the way. See, this game is not officiated in slow motion. It's not officiated in slow motion. It's officiated in real time. And unfortunately, nowadays, everybody except the officials are, re are, are officiating it in slow motion. So when it's officiated in real time, there's doubt. Things happen so fast, there is doubt. So when in doubt, lean this way. When in doubt, when in doubt, make it a fumble. Don't rule them down. When in doubt, now it becomes a replay issue because replay can come back and fix it. But if you rule them down when you're in doubt, then it is a fumble. Replay can't fix it other than give the defensive the ball, but you can't give them their advance. The, the interesting thing about replay is that, and, and you know, we've you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. The interesting thing about replay is that the zealots who believe that the game should be officiated by replay don't understand that it take that would take away so much of the spontaneity of the game, the pace of the game, et cetera. That's why replay was thrown out in the first place. And, and, and those like I used to be who say, well, you know, replay is far too intrusive. And I still believe is distorted by the super slow-mo. You know, when, when it happens bang, bang on the field, that's one thing. When, when you look at it in super slow-mo, you're, you're convinced that just the opposite happened, but it, but that's not the case. But in, 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 
when it's all said and done, if the it, and here's where the philosophy comes in when we first brought replay back, one, it's got to be egregious. Two, has to be absolutely clear cut, no question about it. Three, we're only going to give so many challenges, so we don't want the game cut up because of, of constant stoppages. To me, if we just added, you could only uh, officiate in real time. You can only use replay in real time. I'd be fine with it. See, the, the thing is, too, that – and here's my gripe, and, and I'm to the point now where I'm, I'm just not sure I like it at all um, because I think it's hurt officiating because I think now it's gotten to the point with so much being reviewable that officials are relying on replay. Mm-hmm. That's not good. In my day, we didn't have replay. You had to make the call. When you threw your flag for pass interference, you had to get your flag to the spot where it occurred. You didn't have big brother in your ear going, move the flag from the 36 to the 32. <laughs> so you've got this. They're in your ear all the time. But, see, I go back thinking of George Young, who was there, was the head of football operations in the, in the NFL when replay came in in um, 1999. And, uh, and he used to go into his office, and we go to a meeting. He had just a simple manila folder. It was a simple one of these damn manila folders, one of these things right here, baby. One of these things, you know, and and instead of writing on the tab here, instant replay, he wrote on this thing in big letters across. He wrote, the monster grows. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you think about it and he was right, because when we brought replay in in 1999, it was based wholly on grounds, lines and planes, period, period. Those are all facts. Those aren't, there's nothing in those that aren't facts. Those are all facts. And look at us now. Now we're using replay to judge whether or not a receiver held on to the ball long enough to have completed the catch. A pure judgment call. So they've taken that thing at the bang bang thing that Bill's talking about. You know, they've taken that where it's it's close and they rule incomplete. And then you look, oh, but he got a third step down, or he's started to turn up field it doesn't belong replay doesn't belong there you know and and the, the first the first step we took that involved judgment the first step that we took uh was when replay first came in if they ruled a fumble on the field replay could come in and put the runner down if he was in fact down but if they ruled him down and it was in fact a fumble you couldn't do anything about it And then we looked at that and said, it just doesn't seem fair because we can't correct some obvious mistakes. We should be able to at least to give the ball to the defense if he recovers it in the immediate reaction, action after the play. So there's no stoppage of players after the ruling of him being down. And they said, well, but that could be a safety issue. True, let's try it. Here's the plays from last year, 15 of them. Safety, obviously not an issue. So we put it in. But then we first, there we get into the judgment. Did... Did it? Did did um, the recovery by the defense occur in the immediate continuing action of the play? And then we said pass, the pass, pass complete or incomplete. We said if you rule the pass complete, you could always reverse it to incomplete if he doesn't control the ball. But if you ruled it incomplete, you couldn't turn it into a completion. And then we said, okay, we changed that and said, okay, we can turn it into a completion and give the ball to the other team or whomever recovers it. 
um, if the ball is recovered in the immediate uh, action at the conclusion of the play. So here we went down this road of judgment. Judgment, 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 judgment. More and more has come into it. And I just don't think that it's a good thing. And I don't think it's a good thing. And, and you know, O2O. Any of you know what an O2O is? No. O2O is official to official. So you realize now that the game used to be officiated in my day. It wasn't that long ago, by the way. Right. Uh, but, you know, in my day, you were alone. And, you, you know, you, you made the calls. And you had to make the call. You weren't dependent on anybody else. Nobody talked to you. Now they got O2O, which is official to official communication. So they can talk to each other all the time. And guess what? Replay is connected to it now, too. So replay can talk into your ear. And guess what? New York is now connected into O2O. So they can talk to you. And to me, it's like what's going on now, and I agree with some parts of it, but you know, you 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 had a play in the in the Atlanta Tampa Bay game where with 22 seconds to go on the clock, the official, the referee on the field, rule a pass fumble situation, ruled fumble, recovered by the defense who advanced in for a touchdown. There was offside in the play. Okay. So, anyways, you're going to uh, penalize offside, and at the end of the play, there was 10 seconds to go. Yeah. Yeah. So the referee makes the announcement, and then all of a sudden, we hear this other announcement in the background. And the replay official told him it was a pass. It was a pass. So the referee then said um, it was an incomplete pass. Reset the game clock to 19 seconds, which what it would have been if it was a pass and the ball hit the ground, an incomplete pass. So they did that. Then they show one last replay. It's a fumble. And by now it's too late to do anything. So essentially the clock was reset to 19 seconds which gave Atlanta nine more seconds. It's like this dude in the box to me shouldn't be given this type of information. Now that he's the new, I get it, video assistant, some things he can help with that are going to go into review and maybe save a, a stoppage. That's cool. But when you got 19 seconds to go and you're whispering something to the referee to get him to change things, and in fact, he's wrong. Not good. There's yeah. just a little too much for me, really. Yeah. Mike, we, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, I'll, I'll end it. Uh, we, you know, we could do four more shows, but you got a game to do tonight. Uh, I'll end it on this with this famous George Young quote that you'll remember. Replay is just replacing one guy's lousy judgment with that of another. <laughs> that's, that's so true. That was, it was so true. And even in the days, you know, who'd you replace? Who do who would you make your replay assistants? You would make your replay assistants the guys you wanted to get off the field because they weren't any good on the field. <laughs> and then you put him in the booth where he could have all his- <laughs> the all-knowing Wizard of Oz character. Gets him the ultimate power to the worst yeah. guy. <laughs> it's the way of the world. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys. Hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Great to see you again. If you get any extra suits you don't need, send them my way, will you? No, I'll see. Tell me how much you weigh. I'm not sure you'd fit. <laughs> he weighs 130 pounds. It wouldn't work. He's also short. <laughs> <laughs>
It's a little short. Hey, hey. All right, guys, I enjoyed it. See you guys. Thanks a million, Mike. Appreciate it very much. Bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.